Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from Farnham U3A History Group. In this talk, Jenny Thorpe tells us about the White Rajas of Sarawak. Part B. Now time to turn to Charles Anthony Johnsonbrook to give him his full name. He lived from 1829 to 1917. After the tough school of the Royal Navy, he joined his uncle's service in 1852. He was immediately sent to live and share the longhouse of the Sekrang Dyaks. He wore their dress, spoke their language, and came to understand their customs. Unlike James, he liked women and enjoyed the sexual freedom the Dyaks offered, fathering at least two illegitimate children. His early experience would remain with him throughout, for while James found an affinity with the cultured Malays, Charles found a greater empathy with the Dyaks. Spencer Sinjin described him as a boor, taciturn, and humorless. While he clearly lacked his uncle's charm, there can be no doubt as to his practical and military abilities, combined with his single-minded determination to do his best for the country. His limited education was augmented by his reading in the outposts and when in Europe he acquired a taste for opera. He added an additional layer of advisers, the small council Negri in 1867. But remember, both councils are advisory only. Brook rule remained absolute. On James' death, Charles was immediately accepted as Raja by the councils and then he returned to England to find a wife in order to create a legitimate heir so there could be no problems over succession. While visiting his wealthy widow cousin, he was much taken with her 19-year-old daughter, Margaret. Initially, she did not warm to her taciturn cousin, now aged 40. However, on reading his autobiography, Ten Years in Sarawa, written while up country, it seems that everyone who spent time there had to write a book. Anyway, she was struck not only by his understated courage, but by his evident love of the country and its people. As her diary records, our eyes met. His were kind and grave. Well, I said, I will say yes. And they were married on October the 28th, 1868. <coughs> Margaret, too, wrote a memoir in 1913 entitled somewhat unimaginatively, My Life in Sarawa. Here is a somewhat abbreviated description of her journey to her new home. I was seasick almost the whole way from Marseille to Singapore. When on arrival, we received an invitation from the governor to stay with them. However, we chose to take up quarters in a hotel. Later, we dined with them and the Chief Justice and his wife, Lady Maxwell, who asked us to spend a day with them at their country house. This we did, and it was all delightful and lovely, barring the fact 
I met none of the Singapore natives on these occasions. Margaret had read Charles' autobiography and expected to meet the natives of Singapore, but Singapore was following the white Saab tradition, so she didn't meet any of them. As to the delights of the first impression of the tropics, I must say I hated the heat, the damp, clammy feel, and I thought I should never find happiness there. After a few days in Singapore, we embarked in the Raja's yacht for the passage to Kuching, a journey of only two days. It was on board I had my first experience of cockroaches and rats, which kept me in a perpetual state of terror at night. Everyone must be familiar with rats more or less at a distance, but these rats were disconcertingly friendly, sometimes even scratching at my pillow. It was the third morning that I crawled up on deck to look at the scenery. It was the most beautiful I have ever seen. The tide was on the turn, and the morning mist was still hanging about the watery forest on the banks and about the high mountains of the interior. I could see brown huts dotted on the beach. Women were washing clothes on the river banks. They were clothed in one long clinging garment, folded and tucked under their armpits, and their straight long black hair was drawn into huge knots at the nape of their neck. Scenes which you could see today if you went to that part of the world. I've certainly seen that um, people washing and they're just dressed and then hair in the knots. So in some ways, nothing much changes. Here and there, on our way up, we met Chinamen propelling their boats, gondolier fashion, with cargoes of fish for the Kuching market. Kuching is not on the coast, so it, obviously it was not going to rival Singapore that easily. You have to go up the river to Kuching. It was then I made the acquaintance of the Malay crew. I tried to make up to them with smiles, but they only bent double as they passed. Now, it would have been totally disrespectful for them to have looked at her or responded to her in any way. Of course, she did not understand that at the time. They paid no more attention to my friendly advances than they did to my cane chair. I was told they were as efficient as any European crew, and why not? The Rajah was accompanied on this occasion by one of his officers who had come to meet us in Singapore. As we three sat on deck, I thought they were the most silent pair I had ever come across. <laughs> I wanted to know about the country and ask questions, but no satisfactory answers could be obtained. And I was gently made to understand that I had better find things out for myself. So how did Margaret find her new home? The house, known as the Astana, they all were called that, was built by Charles following the destructive fire of 1857. The rooms were large with high ceilings and suitable for entertaining something Charles himself only rarely enjoyed. 
he continued James' custom of welcoming all and sundry in the evening until the dinner gong sounded at eight o'clock when they all immediately left. Following his advice, she made friends with the Malay chieftain ladies and soon she was not only fluent in the language but could read and write it as well. Known as Raja Rani, her attitude ensured any social barriers were soon broken down. A talented musician, she composed the national anthem. And another achievement was the founding of a school for Malay boys. However, it wasn't long before Margaret became pregnant, giving birth to a daughter and twin boys. Sadly, they all died of cholera in 1873, when they were in the Red Sea en route to England. While there, she gave birth to Vina, and then the following year in Kuching to Bertram. Finally, in 1879, a third son, Harry, arrived. Family life, her Malay friends, infrequent European visitors, and occasional trips with Charles filled her days. Meanwhile, Charles was occupied in steering the ship and forever seeking improvements. As I said earlier, James' administration had been distinctly ad hoc, but under Charles, it became most highly organized. There were separate departments for the treasury, customs and excise and public works. The country was divided into four divisions, headed by a resident, and then subdivided into four districts, headed by a district officer, sometimes with an assistant cadet. Beneath was a second layer from the elite Malay class appointed by Charles himself. He recruited young English bachelors to his service on a 14-year-old contract, after which it was assumed they would go home and get married. Describing local relations as natural indulgences, which he of course completely understood, he insisted on discretion. Docked pay or even dismissal could follow any flouting of the convention. Charles was definitely opposed to any memsob society, believing it would, and here I'm quoting, interfere with the ability to truly understand the native population and any understanding of the Indian mutiny would surely prove his point. Trade was handled by the Borneo Company, rubber being the chief export. Sarawak was not a rich country, but treasury funds were augmented by the sale of alcohol and opium monopolies to rich Chinese. One reason funds were stretched was due to Charles' ambitious expansion program at the expense of Brunei, which he described as that garden of weeds. So those of you who've got the map, you can see how far it goes in 1863. Under Charles, it extended considerably further. By a mixture of diplomacy and cash, he succeeded in vastly increasing the borders. While outwardly impressive, his success overstretched both the administration and the economy. By the Treaty of 1888, Great Britain recognized the sovereignty of Sarawa while international affairs and defense were taken into British hands. In 1911, Charles received a knighthood and in 1913 was offered a baronetcy, which, 
to Margaret's fury, he turned down. In the hope of developing a sense of community, in 1870, he had started a newspaper, the Gazette, and he keenly supported the week-long annual regatta on the river for which all upcountry officers would gather. He also founded the museum, which includes to this day not only his famous canon, but also books of his letters concerning his improvements. Here we can read about his work on supplying Kuching with water, the creation of wharves and warehouses, and in 1914, a railway which ran for 14 miles beyond Kuching. Further, when oil was discovered in Miri in 1914, it was the aging Charles who took charge of the negotiations. Throughout, his meticulous attention to detail can be clearly seen. As the boys were sent to Winchester and then on to Cambridge, Margaret was spending more time in England and, according to Charles, spending far too much money. <coughs> Charles was clearly frugal to the point of meanness. Many were shocked when he refused to provide financial support to his orphan nephew, Hope. Money became such a bone of contention, they separated in the 1890s but remained on amicable terms. While Margaret lived in London, Charles purchased an estate near Sirencester where hunting would become his passion. The Rani painted a sympathetic portrait of him in her book, Good Morning and Good Night, published two years before her death in 1936. Now, Viner had been declared the heir apparent at the age of 17. However, his life at Cambridge caused his parents much concern. <coughs> he took up boxing and horse racing, and his gambling debt soon landed him in the hands of loan sharks. Meanwhile, the steadier Bertram had done well, gaining a rowing blue before joining the army. At 23, Viner was called to Sarawak to take up a cadetship upcountry in order to learn the ropes. Like his father, he immediately developed a rapport with the Dayak, becoming fluent in their language and customs. As his eldest daughter, Leonora, wrote in her diary of 1922, he always knew what to say to them. And while the dances went on for hours and hours, he never seemed bored or tired. No wonder they loved him. A distinct contrast with his usual social, gloomy demeanor. Unfortunately, Viner did not follow his father's examples in the business of government, leaving it up to his advisers. While his word was absolute, he could be irritatingly indecisive and capricious, so this made the task far from easy. Viner always seemed to need to be kept amused, and this probably explains the role played by Gerard McBrien. He was charismatic, brilliant, but unstable and universally disliked. Nonetheless, Viner kept him as his private secretary throughout. Another antidote to boredom was his openly roving eye. So, what of his marriage to the daughter of the high-ranking courtier politician, Viscount Isha? Both parents had opposed the marriage, as her family hoped for something better, 
and the Brooks because they feared she would leave Viner into further extravagances. His courtship began in 1902, but it was punctuated by long spells in Sarawa. Finally, in 1911, they were married. The following year, the couple, together with their baby daughter, Leonora, arrived while Charles was absent on leave. Sylvia was entranced as her mother-in-law had been, and all went well until Charles returned. Friction was immediate and would prove incapable of resolution. By 1914, not only had the marriage only produced three daughters, thus failing to secure the succession, but Sylvia's flamboyant behavior and continual flirting with the officers proved another issue. Her own father wrote of her, dignity does not enter into her scheme of things. Finally, supported by Margaret, Charles proclaimed his political will. This stated not only that Bertram was to be Viner's heir, but that authority should be shared in approximately six monthly blocks. Both were to be accorded the 21-gun salute on arrival, thus indicating their equal status. As Bertram had not visited Sarawak for many years, this increased Viner's understandable resentment. Charles hopes that sharing the load, combined with time in England, would result in a workable compromise, would prove distinctly over-optimistic. Friction was inevitable, and any sensible reforms established by Bertram were immediately undone on his brother's return. The relationship was broken and was never mended. Charles died in 1917, and despite his request to be buried in Sarawa, he was laid to rest with his uncle at Sheepstall. Matters rumbled on, but by the 1930s, Britain increasingly attempted to insert an advisor into the administration in order to bring, as they saw it, greater stability and introduce legal and educational reform. This was always stubbornly blocked on the basis of the 1888 Treaty. A report of 1937 described a system breaking down being the natural result of a lethargic ruler vested with absolute authority and an amateurish council of advisers. While somewhat unfair, this was essentially correct, and by now both Rajas were feeling their age. Although Charles had wished for them to be regarded as equals, this was never the case in practice. Tradition would always favour the elder. During her increasingly less frequent visits to Sarawa, Sylvia continued to pursue her ambitions to be a successful author. She published 11 books, but her only commercial success was her salacious autobiography, The Queen of the Hunters, published in 1970, the year before her death. It must be noted that factual accuracy was never her forte. Meanwhile, the antics of their three daughters featured widely in the British press and did nothing to enhance the Brooke reputation. While Leonora became the second wife of the Earl of Inchcape and produced a son, Simon, Elizabeth scandalized society by marrying the band leader, Harry Roy, and Valerie, even more shockingly, Bob Gregory, an all-in wrestler. <laughs> Both marriages, unsurprisingly, 
ended in divorce. In 1939, Bertram had been accompanied, when it was his turn, by his son Anthony, whom it was widely assumed would in time inherit. A few months in Sarawa, 1936, was followed by a course on colonial administration at SOAS. In 1938, he returned and was declared heir apparent. A few weeks later, Viner left for England, leaving his 26-year-old nephew in absolute charge. Anthony eagerly set about a program of reform. Inevitably, Ruthling established feathers as he did so. His last act before Viner returned, and he himself left to be married, was to declare war on Germany. Influenced by the gossip and without any consultation, Viner abruptly revoked Antony's authority in January 1940. However, Bertram succeeded in patching matters up so that Antony returned, but not for long. In January 1941, again, without any consultation, Viner divested himself of power in favor of a written constitution with sovereignty being handed over to Britain this to include financial compensation, which would provide the necessary security for his family. Anthony instantly traveled to Kuching to protest, and a carbon copy of events 70 years earlier was followed. He was immediately sacked for insubordination, and he left instantly for Singapore. This, of course, ensured he would survive the war. Meanwhile, storm clouds were gathering in the east once Japan signed the tripartite agreement with Germany and Italy in September 1940. Once Britain, America, and Dutch cut oil supplies to Japan, it was clear they would look to the rich and poorly defended islands for replacement. By the terms of the Treaty of 1888, defense was the responsibility of the British, but in practice, this had always been minimal. At the same time, McBrien set about realizing assets on the Raj's behalf, such as selling the cinema, and at the same time, planning the September centenary celebrations. Interestingly, there was no ritual or pageantry associated with the Raj's, apart from one thing, and that was to be covered by a yellow umbrella. The moment the celebrations were concluded, Sylvia sailed for the States, while Viner and McBrien left for a holiday in Australia, leaving the Judicial Commissioner, Cyril Legros-Clark, in charge. He was so incensed by what he saw as a dereliction of duty, he refused to attend the farewell. Viner later declared he'd no idea a Japanese invasion was likely. Mm. But there's no doubt McBrien would have known. On December the 16th, 10,000 troops landed unopposed at Miri Airfield. And five days later, Kuching was bombed. By Christmas, the capital was in the hands of the Japanese. From 1943, Viner lived in England, as did Bertram. Once peace was declared, the government began negotiations for the handover of Surawa to the crown. Talks were initiated with Antony, but they reached impasse as he would not yield sovereignty. Thus, the British turned to the aging Viner, whose main interest was 
the financial settlement. There appears to have been no concern for the people of Sarawa or consultation with Bertram, nominally his equal in authority. In February 1946, Viner proclaimed, there shall be no Raja of Sarawa after me. My people will become the subjects of the king. While a debate over the legality of effectively selling the people of Sarawa troubled Sir Shenton Thomas, he concluded his majesty's government has done the right thing in accepting the Raja's offer. On Sunday, April the 14th, 1946, Viner and Sylvia landed in Kuching, where the people were full of apprehension. The Raja soothingly implied the old ways would remain more or less unchanged, and he promised to visit annually, something, of course, he never did. He simply insisted they should trust and accept his judgment. On May the 15th, the Council Negri passed the terms of the proclamation by the narrowest of margins. There's some debate as to the figures, but in order to make it dramatic, I've used them <laughs> the closest. That is, 18 in favor, 16 against. And by this vote, Britain acquired its final colony. Bertram was permitted to attend, provided he remained silent. The voting figures clearly illustrate the decision was far from being universally popular. And indeed, Dawson, a prominent British official, declared if the Raja had been 41, not 71, it would not have passed. Viner died in London in 1963, sadly still at odds with Bertram, who died in Weybridge two years later. Both were laid to rest in the family burial ground at Sheepstore. Bertram, in death, was regarded as a Raja and an equal, although he had never been in life. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group.